The final investigator I chatted with was Dr. Hagop Kantarjan, and to begin, we chatted about AML and MDS, beginning with a fascinating paper evaluating a French study on gemtuzumab ozogamycin and acute myeloid leukemia. This is a very important study, and to put it in the context, there's an old drug called gemtuzumab ozogamycin, which is a monoclonal antibody bound to calichiamycin that was FDA-approved for the treatment of acute myeloid leukemia in the salvage setting. So later on, there was one study from SWOG, which was a negative study, and in that study, it was shown that maybe the early mortality with the addition of gemtuzumab to the chemotherapy was slightly higher. So this led to the FDA withdrawal of the drug from the market. And here we are facing a difficult situation because there is an increasing burden of evidence that shows that the drug is actually beneficial. There's data in acute promyelostic leukemia that shows it to be effective. There's data from the previous ASH meeting in the subset of the core binding factor leukemias in version 16 and translocation 821 that shows it to be effective. And now we have three studies at this ASH meeting that show the benefit of adding gemtuzumab to chemotherapy. So the first one comes from the French group by Dr. Sylvie Castagne, where the investigators looked at the potential benefit of gemtuzumab in people 50 to 70 years old, and they randomized them to chemotherapy with or without the addition of gemtuzumab. The critical part of the study is that gemtuzumab was given at a smaller dose than what was approved, so 3 milligrams per meter square, three times during the induction, and then twice during the consolidation. And what the investigators found was actually that the addition of gemtuzumab does not increase the induction mortality, but it significantly improved the event-free survival and uh, leukemia-free survival, it almost doubled it from less than 20% to about 40 to 45%. And significantly, it improved the median survival from 15 months to 25 months. This data is also supported by two other studies presented at DASH. The first one was from the MRC, and this study was done also in older patients, and the patients were randomized to chemotherapy with or without gemtuzumab, and they used less of the drug, so three per meter square only once. And this study, which was reported by Dr. Ellen Burnett, also shows an improvement in the two-year survival from 30% to over 35% with a significant p-value. The second study, so in essence, the third study from the ASH comes from the Golam group. So this is a European group where the investigators also randomized patients to chemotherapy with or without gemtuzumab, a single dose of six per meter square. And they found that among the patients who did not undergo allogeneic transplant, the three-year event-free survival was significantly improved from 27% to 54%, so almost a double. So the question now is, what do we do? And I think the cumulative evidence shows that the drug is quite active, in different subsets, and perhaps we should revisit the idea of having the drug available to the medical oncologist for the treatment of these subsets of leukemias. Do you think that's going to happen? I'm hoping so. I was very much disturbed by the withdrawal of the drug two years ago because of that single study. And we wrote some rebattles to that effect, but nothing has happened. I'm hoping that the FDA will reconsider their 
action, and I'm hoping that the company who's in charge of that drug will make it available again. Let's talk about paper 607 by Mikhail Sekaris. In myelodysplastic syndrome, as you know, since the discovery of the two classes of agents, so the hypomethylating agents, azacitidine and decitabine, and then lenalinomide, the immune modulatory inhibitory derivative of thalidomide, since the discovery of these two classes of agents and their activity in myelodysplastic syndrome, we've been struggling to further improve the outcome of these patients, which, though improved, remains modest. The study by Dr. Sekaris essentially combines these two drugs, and I think of all the combinations that have been tested in the past five years, this combination is probably the one that is giving us the best results. So what they did is they used azacitidine as 75 per meter square daily for five days, so less than the single agent schedule, which is for seven days. And then they combined it with lenalinomide, 10 milligrams daily for three weeks every four weeks. They have 32 patients, and they showed that overall the response rate is about 70%, and the complete response rate is about 40%. They also show that those remissions are long-lasting. So among the patients who achieve the complete remission, the median remission duration is exceeding 27 months. All in all, I think this is a combination that needs to be further pursued in randomized pivotal trials, looking at azacitidine with or without lenalinomide. There have been other attempts to improve the outcome with the combinations of histone deacetylase inhibitors and hypomethylating agents. But I think that route, although having a very strong scientific rationale, has not clinically materialized. So there are a couple of studies looking at hypomethylating agents with or without histone deacetylase inhibitors, which have not shown an added benefit of the histone deacetylase inhibitor. Now, another question is, well, where are we going in myelodysplastic syndrome? Are there any useful trends? And I think there are. So there are some trends in the cytotoxic agents, such as cepacitabine and clofarabine, where we're showing modest activity with response rates in the range of 20 to 30% among patients who have failed hypomethylating agents. And then there are additional trends using targeted therapies One of them is a drug called ONO1910, which is a multi-kinase inhibitor, which is now undergoing pivotal trials, but we don't know the results yet. And finally, there are some modifications of the hypomethylating agents, such as oral azacitidine, and then another drug called SGI110, which is an improved formulation of decitabine, which are giving us interesting results. All in all, I think that in the next five years, we are going to see a further improvement in the outcome of patients with myelodysplastic syndrome, either using a combination of azacitidine, decitabine with lenalinomide, or with the discovery of some of those other agents in terms of their established efficacy in myelodysplastic syndrome. So that interesting summary actually leads me to ask you about 40 questions about different abstracts that were presented. So let me just take them one at a time. First, getting back to Dr. Sekaris's paper, do you think there's a role outside of protocol setting right now for ever utilizing this combination of lenalidomide and azacitidine? I think that although there's some pressure to do so, we should refrain from doing it because that combination can be toxic. 
We're not yet sure about the optimal dose schedules. For example, at our institution, we're looking at shorter dose schedules of lenalinamide. So I think at this stage, we should not try to use the combination in the conventional practice setting, but further pursue it in investigational studies. Another question about that combination. What do we know about it in DEL5Q? In the deletion 5Q, we know that lenalinamide by itself is quite active, but that pertains to the subset of patients with myelodysplastic syndrome, low risk with a single deletion 5Q abnormality. Once you use lenalinamide in patients who are more advanced in their disease or with a complex karyotype involving deletion 5Q, then lenalinamide on its own might not work. So it'll be reasonable to have a study looking at the hypomethylating agent with lenalinamide in the more common subsets of patients with MDS and deletion 5Q with either more advanced disease or with a complex karyotype. Now, we pulled a couple other papers in terms of novel agents. One is 254-CPX351. This is an interesting compound, which essentially is a liposomal encapsulation of RAC and donorubicin in a 5 to 1 molar ratio, which in the preclinical studies was thought to be an optimal ratio for penetrating the leukemic cells and killing them. There had been a previous study of CPX351 versus 3 plus 7 in frontline acute myeloid leukemia, and in that study, the CPX tended to have a favorable outcome and in a subset analysis of the high-risk patients with acute myeloid leukemia, meaning patients with secondary leukemias, there was a survival benefit. In this study, which looked at the context of salvage therapy, the patients also were randomized on a two-to-one basis to the CPX351 versus intensive salvage standard therapy. What was interesting, again, is the investigators found similar results to the frontline therapy. That is, overall, there was a trend for an improvement in the response rate and the survival, but that trend was most notable in the patients with the unfavorable karyotypes. So the question is how to develop the drug further. I think what I'd like to suggest, perhaps, is to look at CPX versus standard of care, but focus on the patients with the unfavorable features, secondary AML in the front line or patients with unfavorable karyotype, and do a large randomized study that would potentially lead to statistical improvements in the outcomes. Now, this study was restricted to people under age 65, and of course, a frequent question is the older patient. How is this agent tolerated, and do you see it maybe having a future in terms of older patients? It's interesting that with the liposomal encapsulation, you would think that the toxicity profile would be less, which overall it was in terms of less hair loss, less GI toxicity and others. But we were surprised in the study to see that the myelosuppression was more prolonged with CPX351 than with the intensive chemotherapy. I think one could look at maybe lower dose schedules of the CPX351 among older patients to see whether such schedules would be less toxic but also more effective. So if I were to design a study with this agent, I would probably take half of that dose and give it as a low-intensity regimen to older patients with acute myeloid leukemia who are not fit for intensive chemotherapy. 
I'm curious about your thoughts about abstract 421 looking at a FLT3 inhibitor. Let's start, Nib. So to give a global idea about the FLT3 inhibitors, there was quite a bit of excitement with the first generation of the FLT3 inhibitors, including this one, Lestartinib, which is also called CEP701. There were other agents who are FLT3 inhibitors, including one that is currently undergoing frontline studies with chemotherapy with or without that agent, PKC412. But what we realized with the FLT3 inhibitors is a lot of it is not simply related to the concept of the FLT3 ITD subset of patients who will respond to these drugs, but it could be also related to the amount of protein binding of the FLT3 inhibitors and their availability to the leukemia cells. This study expands on that notion, and what it shows is that the drug is active and could improve the outcome in patients who can achieve an adequate plasma inhibitory activity. And there's another twist to that study where the investigators show that as you give the drug, you have increasing levels of the FLT3 ligand, which nullify the effect of the drug. So it's like an autosystem that becomes inhibitory to the effect of the drug. So there's a bit of a disappointment in this context, but I'd like to refer to another FLT3 inhibitor, which is called AC220, which has completed studies in the salvage setting, and this is abstract 2576. And this drug has been given in both salvage 1 and salvage 2 to patients with acute myeloid leukemia who are FLT3 ITD positive. And we were surprised, positively surprised, to find that about half of the patients achieve marrow-complete remissions which are durable. So I think we have to continue paying attention to the FLT3 inhibitors because I do think that they will improve the outcome of the subset of 30 to 40% of patients who are FLT3 ITD positive when we give them in combination with chemotherapy and of the existing FLT3 inhibitors, the AC220 compound appears to be the one that's most available to the leukemic cells and more effective. Now, these agents are multi-kinase TKIs. Are there any other TKIs out there for AML and MDS that are, you know, attacking other pathways that look promising? There are other kinase inhibitors and targeted therapies. The one that is producing a lot of excitement is a class of agents called hedgehog inhibitors. The notion there is that there is a pathway along the hedgehog and smoothen pathway which can be activating and preventing leukemia cell death. So when that small pathway is activated, we see that the leukemic cells live longer than what they should. So there has been a whole class of agents developed by multiple companies called hedgehog inhibitors, which are in fact smoothen inhibitors, which are under testing. And one of them is a compound that was reported upon at ASH in abstract 424. This is an oral agent, which was in a phase one study. What the investigators report is that they were able to escalate the dose of the drug from five milligrams to about 300 milligrams. They do see some fatigue among the patients, but really no dose-limiting toxicities. And they report in that study among about 30 to 35 patients that they saw significant reductions in the blast in six patients with acute myeloid leukemia. They saw a partial cytogenetic response 
in one out of four patients with CML blast crisis treated. And interestingly, they saw stability of the disease among five patients with myelofibrosis, including one patient who had resolution of the myelofibrosis. Now, we need to put the efficacy of this class of agents in the context of the dormant primitive stem cells. So apparently, these hedgehog inhibitors can affect the primitive leukemic stem cell. And the idea, perhaps in the future, is to try to use them to eradicate disease, for example, in chronic myeloid leukemia, or in patients with high-risk acute myeloid leukemia who have persistent minimal residual disease. So we could give them at the time of remission to kill the last leukemic stem cell and improve the prognosis of these patients. So we were talking before about HDAC inhibitors. What about abstract 423 looking at pabibinostat? That's another interesting class, but as I mentioned, among the existing HDAC inhibitors, although they have significant activity in the T-cell malignancies and they do improve the outcomes in those classes of agents, as of today, the addition of HDAC inhibitors to either hypomethylating agents or intensive chemotherapy in the setting of acute myeloid leukemia has not clarified very objectively that we're improving the outcome of these patients. So I want to ask you about a couple of papers in ALL, one, 252, the anti-CD19 benetumumab. This is where I get very excited because I really think that in acute lymphocytic leukemia, we are witnessing a revolution in the therapy, which is going to increase the cure rate in both adult and pediatric ALL. In pediatric ALL, it's going to be difficult to increase the cure rate, but I do believe that those monoclonal antibodies are going to minimize the need of intensive chemotherapy and minimize the toxicities. I'm going to start with abstract 252, which is an interesting bispecific monoclonal antibody. So this monoclonal antibody is designed to have two arms. One arm, which finds a CD3 cytotoxic T-killer cell, and the other arm finds a CD19 expressing acute lymphocytic leukemia cell. So the idea is the monoclonal antibody will bring the cytotoxic T-cell in proximity to the ALL cell and kills it. There has been studies with this new drug, blinatumumab, in the setting of acute lymphocytic leukemia with minimal residual disease. But this study now updates the results in patients with active leukemia. And what they show so far is that among 18 patients with relapsed pre-B-acute lymphocytic leukemia, 12 of them have achieved a remission, including nine complete remissions. So the CR rate of 50% is almost unheard of in the context of ALL relapse with chemotherapy and with combinations. And we do hope that this drug, either alone or when combined with chemotherapy, is going to improve the outcome of the patients. There are two issues with the drug. One is that it has to be given as a continuous infusion over four weeks every six weeks. And the other one is some neurotoxicity in terms of confusion, some tremors, and occasional seizures. So we have to work around some of the side effects, but overall, they are manageable, and I do think that the drug is going to be very active. That's really fascinating about giving it continuously over four weeks. I can't remember hearing that about a monoclonal antibody. Well, the drug is not new. It's been tested in shorter schedules, including one-week schedules, and at least in the context of lymphoma, 
giving it in shorter infusions has not shown the results that it's showing now. So the idea is perhaps that this molecule has to be a continuous policing effect in the body, catching those leukemic cells and getting them to be killed by the T cells. And it should be a continuous process rather than an intermittent policing process. But now people are talking about the possibility of revisiting shorter infusions of maybe one week to 10 days because there were anecdotal cases of patients where we had to stop the treatment after one week because of some side effects. And those patients have gone in a complete remission without more of the drug. Fascinating. Has this drug been used in pediatric ALL? There has been some experience in pediatric ALL. There are three cases of children with refractory ALL that have been treated and all three achieved the complete remission. And there is now an ongoing multi-institutional, multinational study of this drug in both adult and pediatric ALL. And these studies are opening as we speak. So this drug is going to be also an important drug in pediatric leukemia. Now, how about papers 875? Susan O'Brien and you were reporting that with your group. This is a continuation of the concept. So if you look at the acute lymphocytic leukemia, they have very high expressions of CD20 and hence the use of rituximab in combination with chemotherapy, which improved the outcome of Burkitt leukemia as well as pre-BALL. The ALL cells have a high expression of CD19, which led to the studies with blinatumumab, but there are also other monoclonal antibodies against CD19 that attach the monoclonal to toxins. For example, there's a drug called SAR3914, which is a CD19 monoclonal antibody attached to mitensin, and there are others which are attached to oristatin. The enotuzumab ozogomycin in abstract 875 capitalizes on the notion that the ALL cells also have very high expression of CD22. Because of this and because of the activity of the drug in lymphoma, we developed an investigator-initiated IND study of enotuzumab, so a CD22 monoclonal antibody conjugated to calichiamycin. Remember, this is the same toxin that was used in the setting of gemtuzumab ozogomycin, which is the drug we talked about in acute myeloid leukemia earlier. So this is the same concept, but the drug is targeted against ALL. We conducted a study, a phase two study, that accrued about 50 patients, and we were also very happily surprised because about 60% of the patients achieved marrow-complete remissions. So now we're going to pursue the study in weekly dosages, which we think might be more active and less toxic. And we have ongoing studies combining this drug, inotuzumab, with chemotherapy in older patients with ALL, trying to minimize on the toxicity of the chemotherapy.